Remain standing. Let's, let's, we're just there. So we're in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. As we think about God's word, um, we, go, we come to a passage in the epistle that is probably one of the most, um, certainly one of the most controversial. Um, so would that God would grant us ears to hear, and even more than that, hearts to understand As we hear God's word, listen attentively. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith in itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scriptures, the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is God's word. Let's pray. with a stubborn boldness, acknowledging our great need. Oh God, would you open the storehouses of heaven and feed your people this day? Because unless you feed us, we have nothing. To that end, would I decrease so that the glorious and resplendent Lord Jesus would increase? These things we ask in his name. Amen. All right, gentlemen, I have a question for you. Do you remember your very first pocket knife? It is a universal rite of passage. 
the first pocket knife. Actually, there's a second universal rite of passage, and that is the first cut on your body delivered to you by your first pocket knife. My dad and I went to the sporting goods section of Kmart, as you do, to go get my very first Swiss Army knife, complete with corkscrew, toothpick, tweezers. And as I came to find out at the sports counter in Kmart, a very sharp blade. Don't act surprised. We've known each other long enough. This did not surprise you in the least. A blade is a powerful thing. In the hands of an adversary, a blade maims and kills. In the hands of a surgeon, the blade excises and heals. We don't really know what to do when confronted with the sword of the Spirit of the Word of God because most often in our culture, confrontation is always bad. Beloved, the Word of God is the scalpel in the hands of a gracious and loving surgeon. Whatever is there, whatever cancer is among us, God desires to remove it so that we would be healed and whole. James doesn't mince words. God has a word for all of us today. And beloved, it is by his grace that the scalpel is in his hands, not ours. James paints a very bleak picture of what it means to be a person who has faith. So I want to start this morning by giving you my big idea. If you get nothing else, get this. In fact, just go ahead and write it down because it will be the grid through which we need to interpret everything else that we're hearing in this text this morning. It goes like this. The work of Christ for us begins a work within us that flows out by grace through us in concrete and tangible ways. One more time. The work of Christ for us begins a work within us that flows out by grace through us in concrete and tangible ways. This countervails two pictures that we see in James of when that equation is not happening. The first thing that we see 
is what I've called a lip service faith. This is a faith that is useless to our fellow brothers and sisters. James has strong words as he begins and says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Verses 15 through 17 is his first practical illustration that he will give us. He tells us of the scenario of if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Now, poorly clothed does not mean that they have absolutely no clothing on their back. It probably means they're down to their undergarment. They're down to their tunic or they're lacking in their daily food, the basic provisions of sustenance in order to live. This is the first thing that James says. He's not going to leave us alone with neat categories and nice sayings. The first cancer that the Spirit of God would have uh, excised from our bodies is a lip service faith that does nothing tangible among people. So if this brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that needed for the body, what good is that? We believe in the power of God. And we believe that God hears our prayer and answers our prayers. But we have a problem. Around the time of um, the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was, as often happens in the church, uh, a movement away from Scripture alone and faith alone and grace alone through Christ alone, and other things started coming into the life of the church. One of the things that started coming in to the life of the church was the church, especially uh, in the mainline churches, began moving towards cities and moving towards urban centers and largely serving people in tangible ways. This is good. What's bad is they lost the gospel. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. What ended up happening as a corrective is when people saw that there was a slip away from the scriptures and from Christ and from grace and from faith, what happened is there was potentially an overcorrection where now all of a sudden if we are if we are evangelical not in the category that that is given to us by the news media i prefer confessional anyway i'm a nerd um if we if we say we are evangelical in the sense that we believe that it is by grace through faith in christ that one is saved and made right with god um a corrective happened that moved us away from dealing in very practical and tangible ways with people why 
Well, I hate to say it, but we have a really bad habit. Uh, remember in, in gym when you uh, were growing up and you would play uh, a, a game and you couldn't go like shirts and skins because that's weird. Um, you do that on the playground, but not in, in PE. So they get those, the, the coach brings out the, the smelly bag of really nasty jerseys. You know the smelly bag. Of, was I the only one that had a What happened to me in high school? And everybody puts on the temporary jersey. Here's the problem. We have taken the things that God has commanded us, and somehow they've been divided up into the red team and the blue team. We've put jerseys on the things of God and said that these things belong in certain categories. Here's the problem with this. Do you think that just because someone at some point put a liberal jersey on something that it means that it no longer, we no longer have to think about it because it doesn't fit within our partisan framework? Here's the thing. If your understanding of God fits neatly into a socioeconomic or political construct, you don't believe the God of the Bible. Because here's the bad news. The Bible does not care in the least about partisanship. The Bible does not care in the least who put what jersey on what thing. The Bible does not care whether it is a liberal issue, whether it is a conservative issue. There are simply two kinds of issues in the Bible. And that is how the children of the king act and how the children of the king do not act. There is no other thing. I'm not saying that we're either concerned for people's eternal state or their physical state. What we see here is that it is both. It is a faith that is alive, is is not just going to say, wow, gosh, that seems really hard. I'm going to pray for you. Because in reality, God uses all sorts of ordinary circumstances to accomplish extraordinary things, including you and I. If someone is hurting, if someone is struggling, if someone is in distress, and we have the ability to do something about it, and yet we say, well, be warm and be well fed. God bless you. I'll pray for you. James says, I don't know that I recognize what it is that you say you believe. It's through the ordinary, everyday circumstances that things change in the world. There is no observation deck for Christianity. There, for God's people, for, for sons and daughters of the king, there are no cheap seats. There, are, there is no spectator circle. We are all invested in this. James says, if you are not, if there is not your faith getting down in shoe leather and working itself out in and among the people around you, then you ought to question whether or not you actually possess faith. 
If we see something is wrong and just pay lip service without doing something about it, James says this actually might be a sign that we are not alive at all, but rather dead. And dead people don't make good decisions. The work of Christ for us begins a work within us that flows out by grace through us in real and concrete and tangible ways. But what of the person that just sees the injustices of the world and says, well, someone will fix it. Who? Who? Who is that someone? Please tell me. There's a second thing that James sees. And it's like the first. But again, it's a perversion. We were made to be in communion with God and in communion with one another. The great teachings of the law summarized for us down into two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In the first example that James gave of a lip service faith, we find that there is actually not love for our neighbor at all. There is just the mild platitudes of a well-meaning, I hope you feel better. And James says, that's not love. And then here we see that there is just this head knowledge faith. He goes on and he talks um, about a a situation. We could imagine that there's a rhetorical conversation happening, that a well-meaning objector would come forward. And in the objection, they would say that one may have faith and another has works. The implication here, of course, is that just as God gives different people different gifts, so one person's gift is a spirit of unshakable trust, while God has given someone else a particular aptitude for mercy. James would not actually disagree with that. The problem is not the, the, problem is not the dispensation of gifts. The problem is that that is not what James is talking about. If you look back in verse 14, it says, Can that faith apart from works, save you. He's not talking about a special gift that God gives to a few. He is talking about a saving gift that God gives to all of his people. And he gives an example. He says, demons. Demons know things about God. Demons know lots of things about God. I'll give you one example. Demons know that God is one. Do you know what that does for them? Nothing. They shudder. There is a difference between knowing about God and being known by God. There is a difference between knowing about God and being known by God. For many people in the world, um, God is an intellectual curiosity or a philosophical inconvenience. And for them, Jesus was just a good moral teacher. But at the end of the day, knowledge with, familiarity with, or an ability to quote the 23rd Psalm 
or Matthew 7, 1, don't judge. Read that in the Bible somewhere. Is not the same thing as being known by God. A few weeks ago, Jen and I got to go see a one-man uh, stage production of C.S. Lewis and the story of his conversion. One of the key lines in there for, uh, for Lewis as he was wrestling with the truth of the gospel was this. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Sounds a lot like James, doesn't it? Uh, for those of you that were here at the funeral on Thursday, I um, gave a, a, a few thoughts out of the Gospel of John where Jesus had gone to, um, to, Be- uh, to Bethany because Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, had fallen ill and had died. As Jesus got there, and Lazarus had been in the tomb for several days, he goes, and and Mary stays in the house, but Martha goes with him to the gravesite. And Jesus there at the gravesite said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And he looks at Martha, and he says to her, do you believe this? I don't say a lot of original things at funerals because it's the, it's, we all need to hear the same thing repeatedly. Death is a time for memories and death is a time for questions. And in the hands of the great surgeon, the scalpel that he brings and asks Martha in that moment is, do you believe this? What he was asking was not, I'm about to give you a really quick theology pop quiz, so Bible drill everyone. He was asking her, do you believe this? This this didn't mean that she wasn't going to grieve, but rather meant that belief would both comfort her and change her. And the change inside of her would produce a change outside of her. The demons knew things, but they weren't changed by them. And James says, guess what? Belief that doesn't lead to change is useless. It is only through the work of Christ for us, beginning a work of God within us that flows out by grace through us in concrete and tangible ways. that's, That's the only thing that matters. Faith, apart from works, is useless. So James has given us two negative examples of things that, listen, these are cancers inside of God's people. They will kill you because they probably mean that there's never been life to begin with. And so if anyone has ears to hear this day, let them hear. 
If God were to leave your life tomorrow and your life could still be the same, you would still pay your bills the same way, buy your groceries the same way, go about your vocations the same way. And the only difference would be that there is an extra day on your weekend to take in brunch or read a newspaper. James says, watch out. If there is not transformation on the outside, it's a really good indicator that there's not been transformation on the inside. And so he gives two examples. Two examples of what um, a faith useful to other people and useful to God looks like. This is a true faith that works. The first one is um, where we find ourselves looking at the text that has given um, people some things to talk about among themselves as to what exactly James meant here. He brings up the story of Abraham and Abraham's obedience. And there, there are things that James says that very much line up with what the Apostle Paul would say. And then the, there are things that James says that on the surface does not seem to go along with what the Apostle Paul would say. Now, one thing you have to remember is that James was, as a letter, written very early in the epistles to the church. It's likely, um, it's likely one of the first epistles to the church of Christ that was given. And I don't think that Paul was trying to correct James, or James was trying to correct Paul, or whatever. They're not saying the same thing. So that's where we have to, that's where we have to dig in. Abraham, according to Genesis 15, 6, believed God, right? So what, what happened in Genesis? Uh, God went to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you a father of many nations, right? There's going to be a blessing of children through you. And he and, up, and his wife, up until this point, had been barren. There was no children for them. I'm going to bless you with children. Through that blessing, you will be a blessing to the nations. There will be an inheritance of land. You'll be the father of many nations, and in Genesis 15, 6, it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Later on, though, in the narrative of Abraham's life in Genesis 22, God asks Abraham to do the unthinkable. God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. So James is telling us about this. Verse 21. Was not, our fa- was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, if, you, um, if you've done any sort of Bible study, you know that we have to interpret the Bible through what words mean, how they're used throughout the text of Scripture, and then how they are used um, in, in the broader context of the time in which the Bible was written. The word justified has five meanings. I'm not going to go into all five. I'll give you two. The first one is to be declared or pardoned as not guilty. If you trade around in, in, in Christian circles, you will hear the term forensic justification. This is, this is the declaration of being not guilty. 
Certainly, that is what the Apostle Paul was talking about, that we are justified by faith in Christ, to be declared not guilty. Here's the second thing that the word justified can mean, and it can mean either validated or vindicated. In other words, it is an evidence, it is a validation that something has changed and taken place. Abraham's obedience was a validation or a vindication that the work that God had done in him was manifesting and producing out fruit through him. This story about Abraham and Isaac is one that skeptics and critics of God often point at to assail the character of God. God's character was malicious, his trustworthiness was tainted, and yet in Abraham's obedience it says um, that he was justified by works when he offered up his son. He was vindicated, he was validated. It wasn't just that Abraham knew things about God. He was known by God. The, the, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews says that, if, that Abraham believed, and if necessary, that he believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. He did not for a moment distrust the character and the nature and the goodness of God. And for him, the smile of heaven was greater than anything else. His obedience was a validation that the work of, that God had begun in him was flowing up by grace through him. Unlike the demons whose knowledge of God brought no comfort, Abraham's knowledge of God, experienced through relationship with God, brought obedience even to the point of risking his greatest treasure as an offering to the Lord. There was risk, but the reward was that he had the smile of God and knew that the character of God was completely trustworthy. And because of that, he could demonstrate obedience to God. James gives us a second example. Verse 25. One, one more thought on verse 24. If you read it, you see that a person is validated or vindicated by works and not by faith alone. It is a testimony. It is an evidence. It is a reality. It is a fruit that God has done a transformative work inside us. Okay, next example. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. This is, a, this is a faith that is useful to man. James gives us the illustration of Rahab, who in the Old Testament was used by God to preserve the life of the spies that had been sent to gain intelligence about the promised land. You remember that God's people were in, uh, in exile, wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. Joshua sends the spies in to spy out the promised land. Rahab because she believed God, she gave them cover, she, she, she hid them so that their lives would be preserved and sent them out another way. <clears throat> now, there was risk in what she did, right? If a lip service faith is dead, a working faith towards God's people is costly. 
How do we get there? It means that the implanted word in us, remember what James said in James 1.18, that the implanted word in us is doing things through us. It is when the implanted word in us takes root and takes hold that we do things that would be completely outside of our nature and our character, save alone for the work of God in our lives. The implanted word in us, bearing fruit through us, means that we risk for God, even if it means we are exposed to the world as being followers of Jesus. It doesn't fit in a neat categories because God has always used the unlikely things in unlikely ways to bring about unthinkable results. Rahab was a Gentile. Rahab was a prostitute. She is the exact opposite of Abraham on paper in every way possible save one. She believed in God. And the work of God for her began a work in her that flowed out through her. Real faith is a faith that is established in us because we have been loved by God and flows through us and causes us to love others in concrete ways. There is no private faith. There's not. There is no private faith. There is no faith without work. There is no faith without fruit. Our works are the outward validation of inward transformation. So what about you? What about you? What, what is different in your life? What is growing and changing about your life? What is it that you can look at and others could see in you and we could tell a tree by its fruits if we were to quote Jesus? What's going on? beloved listen here's the good news for you today Jesus gave himself for you because you would never ever prove enough to God or others to merit God's love it is only because you have the love of Christ and the smile of heaven and the spirit of the living Christ within you that it is possible for God to work through you. So it's not really a question of, are you doing enough? It's a question of, do you see the life of Christ in you? Not because you say you believe, and not because you do the right things, but because you've experienced the love of God in Christ Jesus flowing through you and changing you. We're going to come to the Lord's table here in just a moment. And we're going to ask Jesus for help. If he were here right now, what would he see going on in your life? If there's not work there, how does the surgeon need to cut? Beloved, he's not tame, he's not safe, but he's good. And if you ask him, he will, with the care of a surgeon who wants you to be healed and whole, begin to change you. I know this to be true. I've seen it in my own life. He will lovingly go to work on the cancer that you carry so that healing can begin. Let's pray and ask him to do that.